All right, welcome back to another episode of In Search of Sauce, the podcast celebrating the writers who are saving music journalism from death by clickbait. I'm Brandon Hill, and I'm here today with two other members of Central Sauce. Why don't you guys go ahead and introduce yourselves? Hello, this is uh, Tyler Jones. I am a writer for the Discovery section. Uh, I us- you will usually see me do a Why We Like It, and I'm also in charge of curating the Season Sauce playlist. So all those wonderful little jams you hear from like the Why We Like It series or others that we find at Submit Hub, I help curate that. Um, and now uh, you might see a few interviews done on me every now and then. What's going on, everybody? I'm Mickey Hellerback. I am also a writer for Central Sauce. Um, most recently, uh, semi-recently, I did an interview with the Bay Area artist and MC Frack um, in um, co-alignment with his release of his debut pro- uh Actually, no, not debut. His second project, B-List Celebrities. Um, just a full-length profile interview. We get into a lot of cool stuff. He's actually, along with the election that's been happening, he, he does these really cool political cartoons um, where he does like rap battles between Joe Biden and Donald Trump, and those have been coming out periodically. And so you should watch those and then also read about that in the piece. Um, I also semi-recently did a, a digital cover with James Blake for Euphoria magazine, and then I also uh, produced a short film called Beyond the Blue Wall, which kind of dissects the police's blue wall of silence. Go to bluewallfilm.com to check it out to see if, if you like the film and you'd like to help us uh, help support it on um, social media. Um, check that out. Yeah. Yeah, Mickey's been putting in work lately, that's for sure. And uh, I'm Brandon Hill, uh, writer, editor, at Central Sauce, frequent co-host of In Search of Sauce. Uh, My most recent work that I've done is a featured interview with this jazzy British lo-fi band called Fika. Um, They've just recently put out a new EP called Love Stories, so I sat down with the two of them. Um, We talked about romance, uh, heartbreak, the lessons we can learn from love, and just kind of shot the shit for a little bit. So check that out on the Central Sauce website. And you can also subscribe to my newsletter with the link in my bio on Twitter, at Hoopla Hill. So we've got a great show lined up for you guys today. We're going to be talking about um, the pitfalls of SEO hell, musicians' roles in the NSARS movement, and a profile on Flo Millie. But first of all, uh, what have you guys been listening to lately? So for me, it's uh, I've been listening to, I think, what is my album of the year, uh, Take Time by Giveon. Uh, that has been frequent and heavy. Uh, also been listening to, I know it's, uh, this this album has split a lot of her fandom, but I personally like the Ariana Grande album a lot. Um, it, it's a nice little R&B bop album and a few others along with my K-pop stuff with uh, TXT uh, and Monster X. Oh, and also shout out to Luna. They are put out an amazing project. Uh, and that's mostly what I've been listening to outside of what we usually put in the Season Sauce playlist. I love every single person's like piece they've done recently. They've all been amazing and make up most of my stuff. I'll make most of my playlists now around them, like my own personal playlist. So, yeah. Word, man. Um, I... I mean, there's a lot of different new stuff that I've been listening to, but actually the the thing that's been taking up most of my uh, 
listening is recently I've been doing this thing where I go back and I talked about doing it on a previous episode too, going back to kind of my favorite older artists and really going from the beginning of their catalog to the end. Um, it's a thing I've kind of really liked doing. Uh, I've done four artists so far. So I started with Luther Vandross and then I did, um, Al Green, uh, Stevie Wonder. And then most recently I just watched the, um, Rocket Man movie for the first time. Um, That's so, so good. Uh, it's definitely a different. It's really not at all what I expected. If you haven't seen it, it's it's like this kind of weird combo of like film to kind of a musical at the same time. But I wouldn't even really define it as that either because it's so much within that medium of film too, rather than kind of doing like a musical film, like a Singing in the Rain or something like that. Um, but it really made me dig back into Elton John's catalog because I uh, have never done it. I just had never actually gone from beginning to end. Um, my parents played that Don't Shoot Me album with um, Daniel and Elderberry Wine and um, Crocodile Rock when I was growing up heavy, which is still of my top two, but there's this, um, damn, I'm going to forget the name of the album. It's, uh, rock, I think it's called like Rock of the Westies or something, but that ended up being my favorite uh, of his projects. And it's kind of more of a deeper cut that people I don't think listen to, but it's it's really interesting with those artists that you kind of have this um, sense of nostalgia and it's like music you grew up with to really go through their whole catalog and listen to it being more like musically conscious so that's been really what I've been getting into yeah I'm gonna have to go uh we're gonna have to talk about Elton John he's probably like literally one of if not my favorite when it comes to like old school musicians and artists um and Ro- I agree Rocketman I watched Rocketman right after I watched um the what was the Queen documentary Bohemian Rhapsody Bohemian Rhapsody. Yeah, I watched those like back to back because I went on that like biopic kick uh, there for a little while during lockdown. And so I was expecting Rocketman to be more like the Bohemian Rhapsody style um, and was really kind of blown away by like the musical aspects of it. Um, so, yeah, love Elton John. Um, as far as new music, I think the number there's two two things I've been really heavy on lately. Um, the first of them is Chester Watson's new project, uh, A Japanese Horror Story, is so I'm not like a longtime Chester Watson fan or anything. I literally just picked up on this album, like on someone's recommendation. Um, but incredible, incredible concept album. Like it really, really feels like a horror movie and sort of the way that he like directs the atmosphere with the music and the subject and, uh, even the skits a little bit. Um, it sort of feels like it reminds me of like from the unlocked music video with Kenny beats and Denzel Curry, where they have the one section that's like a Japanese horror movie with like the grudge. So it sort of reminds kind of like that concept, but then expanded like across a whole album in a way that's like, like this like darker new job type of sound in the instrumentals. Uh, really good. And then of course, and I'm pretty sure the two of you are both, I know Mickey is, I'm pretty sure, uh, Tyler, you've probably listened to the Better Deluxe oh, by shoot. Deontay Hitchcock. Yeah, I've been hit, I've been bumping that too, for sure. So good. Dude. Yeah, it took, like, so when, when we did our, like, mid-year, uh, episode, and we talked about, like, our hot favorite albums midway through the year, yeah. I know me and Mickey both had, um, Better on there originally, has but then, like, as the, as the year... Well, see, as for me, as the year went on, the original album slowly got knocked off the list. Um, but with the better deluxe, it has come right back, like with a vengeance. Like, I, I haven't seen anyone else use a deluxe album in this way, where they sort of like reimagine and repurpose the content of the original album, rather than just like tacking on a few extra tracks at the end. 
Um, you know, old, old tracks are in new places. New tracks are taking like completely different spots and it, mm-hmm. it really just rechanges the context of most of the, uh, most of the album. Yeah. Well, he really made a deluxe album, a double album, which is not the case yeah. for, for any, I'll, I'll say flat any other deluxe album that I've heard this year to me. I mean, Deontay has my single favorite rap album and favorite deluxe album this year. Um, oh really? Bart, Bart, favorite rap, favorite rap album and deluxe. I have one, only one out on like my list. I only have one album that is really like my favorite album this year that is above it. Other than that, it's number two. I think I had it at number two. If any, if if anything, I had it maybe at three or four, and it moved up. Um, <laughs> but yeah, like the I, yeah, I really, I just it does for some reason the way he delivers is like. Um, I, he makes me the most excited excited about rap music, but the, uh, the most excited I've been about rap music of any artist in recent history, probably. It's a big, <laughs> that's OD, but it's true. No, it's like, but I think that's dope because like here's the thing, like I, as someone who's in K-pop, K-pop does it a lot. Whenever they do a repackaged album, they instead of calling it a deluxe, they call it a repackage. Um, they will change around songs, or the new songs are actually the top of the album and change the contextualized version of the album. Like it's a whole entire new concept and everything with the repackaged version. And I can't remember the last time an American artist did that. And the fact that he did it so well and made it the like the flow of it like even though he changed some things around the flow of it still was fantastic well it's conceptual he just like he split basically the initial album is like a two kind of it goes in the kind of like ignorant like flex rap kind of like knocking beats and then goes into more of a cerebral place though he kind of strews this cerebralness throughout the album still even with those like heavy hitters but he just really separated them into two completely separate projects so there's like the fully cerebral side and then the full just like slaps and i mean i yeah i think it's really dope all right so the first piece we have today is the one that i'm bringing to the episode um and it is titled seo Billie Eilish, Tame Impala, Lizzo, and more, The Accelerating Decline of Music Journalism, and more. Um, It's by Mike Lesseur, who is a senior editor at Flood Magazine. And for me, this story really starts with the tweet that, you know, tweets out the link. Um, And he tweeted, I wrote about a topic that fascinates me and which you're probably tired of me talking about, Billie Eilish, Tame Impala, Lizzo, and more. Um, so this tweet leads into the story, which is a blog post on his uh, on his blog with exactly the point that he's trying to make throughout this post, that music journalism has devolved into a never-ending SEO fest of artist names that bring clicks simply for the sake of bringing clicks. Uh, so live stream events, festival lineups, lists of artists who tweeted about this issue or that issue, etc. Um, it's written like a very well-controlled rant with all the humor and fed-up shots fired throughout. So by the end of it, you're left with this impression that he just had to get this off his chest uh, to get these ideas down, not really because people are going to read it, but because it's a subject that has just been like driving him crazy. So he could go on at length about the semantics of this issue, but instead he contextualize it with the personal influence it has on him as a digital editor. Uh, he paints a bleak scene of him ignoring emails from writers with great ideas and artists with great music to scroll through lists of names on one site just to run them through his site's SEO targets and then regurgitate them again. And he expands on sort of how he knows, you know, that there are other digital editors going through the same thing and there are all these like emails getting ignored from great content um, just because these stories generate the most clicks through SEO. And 
he really takes it further by highlighting the lost opportunity cost of participating in this mindless SEO hell by the space lost for genuine, thoughtful music coverage of artists large and small. Uh, the resulting frustration with lack of coverage has led especially smaller artists to essentially do the job of the music journalist by writing track-by-track -track explanations of their own projects to add some of the needed context that fans usually get from music journalists. You know, and I myself, like, I've increasingly seen so much more of this. Um, it seems like indie artists are encouraged to self-promote themselves constantly by replacing the lack of media work through their own podcasts about their music, Instagram live tables, social media branding, etc. Just like how indie artists are evolving to do the work of a label themselves, they're also realizing that if they can't get the coverage they need, they'll just do it themselves like they're doing everything else. And we can again return the conversation back to lost opportunity cost as we continue to ask more and more of indie artists the demand further cuts back on the time they can spend refining the craft that truly matters to them, which is music. So while a rapper in New Jersey is trying to find the words to write about his life story or figure out how to publish a podcast so they can talk about their new album, they have 100 people to reply to on Twitter and a half-finished plan for promoting their new music video. Uh, the nature of the blog as this controlled emotional dump leaves the piece very open-ended. So it's like when you start venting to a friend about something you just have to get off your chest and you end up apologizing at the end with a fuck, fuck, sorry, I just <laughs> talked for so long, but I feel so much better now. So I figured we could really start this conversation off by sort of picking up where he leaves off. So do you guys see any hope for thoughtful journalism? And what do you think about the impact of the scene on indie artists as he discusses in the piece? Um, I, I think indie artists overall ha do have it tough, especially this year especially with COVID and having to find new creative ways. Um, shout out to Big Stowe on Twitter and who I met from Dead and Hip Hop. He's a writer who's literally giving constant ideas to new indie acts to promote themselves um, because it's it's hard because like most blogs nowadays, us not included, uh, <laughs> usually <laughs> have to don't really do that work. Like even I think the first time when I was getting into music journalism, when I was younger and seeing a lot of stuff, I was like, oh, how do I find things? Billboard um, and some other websites like that. It's usually with through lists. Everything's being listed. It's not like, oh, this thoughtful, thought provoking review and or analysis of something. I had to like find that through the artist page or through their own promotion. So I think this controlled rant is, I think, true. Um, will it stay like this forever? Or like, or is it we're just more moving towards lists overall? It's I feel like it's you can't answer that yet. I mean, like I feel like you have like impassioned journalists that are like either doing podcasts now or, or to almost like get away from like the written medium, but like they're still doing it. People are still discussing albums and or musical concepts at length. It's I'm just not sure the reception of it i don't i don't can't see everyone's numbers to actually see is it actually dying out or not the thing that was funny for me about reading this is um <laughs> i don't feel like i personally check any blogs that do what all of the things that he's talking about <laughs> so when i was reading it i was like this may be true but it has no there's no part of any of the viewing i mean and i like i'm 
a, I don't know, biased is the right word, but obviously like I do this. So, I, the, you know, what I would be looking at, but I do genuinely think that there's a lot of examples of other publications, not only who are doing work that is worthwhile, that like will stand the test of time, especially like, you know, what DJ Booth was doing, though now even with their as they have moved to audio Mac, their intro pieces on people are very, very in depth. Um, but even there, even websites like, uh, the first one it made me think of is like an okay player where there's definitely stuff on okay player that, um, is more in line with the things that he's talking about and doing very quick kind of like pieces about like information, informational pieces, but then also very in-depth op-eds, reviews, um, and interviews. Um, so I, I think the, the, short answer is it seems to me at least like it is very possible to do both and it's interesting to me it was very interesting to me to read his perspective um just because what that says to me is the initial even um feel that I got during the actual blog era like when I remember checking the stuff in the blog era I remember it being very very minimal like he's talking about um and then this is an interesting kind of tidbit that I wanted to add a little bit to uh, is I've just I've just had never heard until now someone talk about the the kind of deal within the PR where artists or slash their PR people are actually crafting pieces for publications to repost because I'm and I very very rarely like to cross these paths but I think it's across these kind of things that I do but it's very I, I just think it's. It makes sense for what we're talking about. So I, I do a little bit of music too, but it's when I, I've worked one time with an actual PR person. And I remember when I was having the initial conversations with the PR person and they said, we need to craft some version of an actual piece to send out to these people in this mass email that we're doing. And I remember feeling, though I wasn't questioning him on it because I thought he knew more than me. I was like, this is so weird. Like, it, is this not like we're doing the journalist's job and they're really just about to, <laughs> like, I was like, this is this my, and this is before I'd really even dived into doing my own journalism. I was like, am I, like, this is my first journalism I'm doing, I guess, on my own <laughs> stuff. But we're literally putting it, and I see it in the PR emails. And even, you know, when we look at, we do Submit Hub for Central Sauce. Like, if you look at these artist profiles for these people there's, <laughs> they have like fully written pieces, usually in their kind of bio section when you're doing research after you accept a song and you want to write about it. Um, so they, they really do the full job of writing a piece for you, even way beyond just kind of giving basic information. Um, so I, yeah, it was definitely, and uh, the last thing before we move on is I, <laughs> it was, it's definitely an interesting read for me and for us because it's so much a part of like the existence of the space that we live in. Um, but I think it's kind of cool that for the first time, we're very much bringing what I would see as a very like music journalism kind of geeky piece to, <laughs> to the podcast. <laughs> like it really is so kind of targeted at fellow music journalists of like, oh, let's let's talk about it, guys. Let's vent. Um, let's but I think, you know, as opposed to like other kind of blog post online vented pieces, there's even still that st still. Uh, semblance of a well-written piece within the blog post so it's kind of cool to kind of cross over those two um i guess mediums right i think i mean and i think you're hitting on something that's also pretty key about it too is um as you know within a music journalist sphere as a music journalist like you know where to go like you can right now like i know 
that you could name like two hands worth plus more of music journalists like that you follow and whose writing you like. Um, but you know, I think when you, when you look at the kind of artists who are triggering these like SEO, like gold mines, um, they tend to be much more like mainstream name skewed artists where this is more like indicative of the general consumption patterns of like the mass music audience rather than specifically targeting like hip hop heads. You know, this is specifically targeting like the, these are the names that, Every single person, when they just read these names, they know who they are. So they're most targeted to reach like the largest mass audience, um, which when, you know, so then that speaks to when you get down to it, like the really, really well-respected journalists, the really thought provoking pieces, they are targeted to a more narrow audience. So they, in, in the advertisement model, they inherently will make less money than the broadly targeted pieces that just list these names of proper nouns. Um, so that, you know, and that's, that's one of the reasons Tyler mentioned this. One of the reasons I brought this piece is specifically because um, it so speaks to like how we operate at Central Sauce and even like how we operate this podcast where, you know, we're finding these substantive quality written pieces and these excellent journalists. And we're, you know, we're trying to do something that that brings them more attention and brings them a platform and really breaks down like the quality of what they're doing. Um, because, you know, like, like, uh, he mentions in this piece, like that stuff for a generalized audience gets buried under a mountain of these SEO targeted listicles. It's, it's, um, it's almost like a microwave culture to a certain degree it's like uh like how you have these art as you were saying before like you have these like art uh, these articles or listicles as he as he was saying um that get these quick clicks that are here for like maybe two three days max leading up to whatever event like especially if it's for like a uh, uh festival or something of that nature and like they get their quick clicks really really fast but like for articles that we cover on here and beyond they're they're almost like not to say classics because I have to say like they're just always going to be the go to piece to for someone to go to, but it's always going to be it's almost like substance over uh, quantity or quality over quantity because um, you have these in depth articles that or interviews that we really get a a depth and insight to these artists to the music that they are producing. Let's uh, like. Like I think another good form because like maybe these are also maybe these are problems that uh big publications are having right or like he's noticing in bigger publications while like a lot of article uh, articles or like art, uh writers that we focus on they've all done something on medium whenever they have a impassioned thing they want to write about that's super in depth right so like maybe it's just like audience maybe it really just is just audience and like separating those two yeah right. Right. Well, that's kind of goes back to what I was saying about like, you can, there's gotta be a way to do both the idea. So I don't, the, the thing that's cool about this piece is it, it really more than anything, um, which I think is good for a piece, uh, at times it, it really just left me with a lot more questions. So it, obviously because it's a rant, he kind of, um, or event really, I think is really the better word. He kind of just, he, he speaks to the audience in the piece as if, we know some version of what he's talking about. You know what I mean? So there's no like real breakdown of what the actual numbers are. And I feel like if you get more into what the real numbers of like this 
was clicked on this amount of times between this and this. I feel like there's there's more of a gray area to to it, but I don't really know. Um, I just I would assume that there's got to be the potential. This is and this is totally assumption. The potential it takes out the entirety of the potential of a re look. Do you know what I mean? Like there's a certain level of music journalism that's like to get enough views, there has to be a certain level of space for, I read this piece, I'm going to share the piece. And that, like, the type, the style of journalism that he's talking about being frustrated with eliminates that possibility entirely. So I feel like there's, like, an inherent, like, the way that I want to think about it is how can you get the clicks on something like that. What is like a technique? Again, this is like raising more questions for me. Technique to get more clicks similar to those other pieces, but still use those other pieces and do them because you have way more of a potential to get word of mouth or, you know, not just word of mouth, but word of social media to spread to actually like get more people to to read a piece, which these other pieces don't allow for at all. Right, yeah, it's... um. And, you know, that's one of those things that, like, DJ Booth was particularly good at, uh, which, you know, we've talked about before. DJ Booth really got their boost by generating the conversation. You know, that was the whole lead for their pieces is to write thought-provoking pieces that generate conversation. But even in the media sphere today now, DJ Booth is taking away their editorial content. Now, they're, they are replacing it with another style of content that I also think similarly does positive things to this issue, um, which is, is high quality. Yeah. Yes, high quality coverage of those small discovery indie artists who, as we mentioned, you know, in the intro and as is mentioned in this piece, are otherwise not getting that quality of coverage. Um, but so that that begs the question because one of the most interesting parts of this piece to me was specifically how he ties it to the implications of you know, what it means for indie artists um, and how much increasingly we see indie artists becoming much more than just rappers. Uh, but we see artists who are, you know, it's way more common now to do your own production, do your own mixing, do your own mastering, be your own A&R, your own PR person. And now, you know, at some level, we're adding on to that, like, no one's going to talk about my music. Well, shit, now I got to talk about my music. <laughs> I got to leave some kind of lasting impact. So, um, you know, in questioning that, it makes me wonder you know, what do you think about indie artists like having a journalist as a piece of their team rather, you know, rather than seeking out like journalists who are going to write for you for outlets, um, you know, an indie artist can sort of become their own platform by working with journalists to put structured content up in front of their fans. So like, for example, um, Chris Patrick hit me up to write his Spotify bio, which I think is very smart because when he has when he goes to a journalist and a writer to do some writing that he needs, he doesn't have to spend the time trying to learn how to, you know, write an excellent Spotify bio. And then there's also uh, my friends, the Slumbums. We've been trying to put together a podcast about their music and having a journalist there to facilitate that conversation who has experience with podcasting makes it a much more effective effort than if you just have two rappers who are like, well, shit, we've somehow got to get the word out, so let's sit down and podcast. So, you know, is this the next step in sort of eliminating major labels and working around of lack of coverage? 
Because, you know, if you're an indie artist and you think so, um, hit my lines for rates, right? Because it's, you know, it's artists. He mentions it's equally it's artists and writers who are having their emails ignored while the publications scroll through these lists of names to regurgitate. Yeah. So yeah. what's funny is I'm kind of new in the game, but what I also do know going even beyond indie artists a little bit is I know for a fact that it has not happened to me yet, but Hey, like you were saying, hit me up. Major labels specifically <laughs> at this point are, are reaching out for their label artists to journalists to not only write their like Spotify bios and things like that, but also to write like their PR emails and like do kind of those, those album reviews and the PR emails are actually being, I don't know how long this practice has been going on. And this is specifically, I didn't even know this was a thing until semi recently. And I saw another journalist tweet that they had been commissioned by a label to do that. Um, but to write those kind of uh, album or song reviews in the PR emails, um, journalists are actually being commissioned to do that. And if there is literally anyone from a major label listening, hit up your boy, Mickey Heller back at gmail.com so I can get in there and write some stuff. I'll send you my website. But also for, on indie artists, I mean, I think um, there's absolutely no reason that they can't do the same thing. Um, and then this also, without giving too much away for what we're doing at our publication, there's a certain level of an opportunity, I believe, for publications to, on some level, though not to cut off from other artists, to build a version of a roster to where, like, you build these relationships organically on the come up with people and then specific publications are like, this is my go-to publication to promote my next body of work or to do a full kind of collaboration. So not, not to act entirely like a label, but like a label, publications have some version of a roster of their own. I think that offers another, and you know, you have to figure out how to monetize that exactly, but I think that's another opportunity that these publications can have to um, make, make, uh, make doing this more in-depth pieces more viable too. Yeah, um, I'm, agreeing, I'm in agreement with everything y'all have said. And like Brandon, I have been approached and have been paid for doing bio work, for doing almost like I've helped write press leases now um, just for artists that I know either I know personally. And they're like, hey, we still want to pay you for your work. And I've been told, if, like, hopefully in the future, they were like, we want to act, we're building a PR team, especially a writer's team. We would love to bring you on. And I'm like, good. I'm glad you have my email and my number and my Instagram. Hit me up. This is also Tyler Jones speaking. If um any artist, <laughs> holla at your boy. But no, it's like, I think artists nowadays are getting, once again, more creative and have to put on a hat of so many things or just have the teams to do so. So I don't know. It's like, it's maybe it's like we're seeing it's, it's cutting out the label middleman. Cause like a lot of artists are once again, now going indie and independent. Mickey, you're independent. Like it's, it's, you're just, you're seeing people just have, Get new find new ways to be creative in their PR. Right. You know, the, the industry in the end is an industry. It's always going to revolve around the money. And that goes to the labels, the writers, the artists, the PR people. They're always going to move to where the money is. So, you know, if you're, if you're a writer and your emails are getting ignored, like you just said, but people are reaching out to you for, um, to write their Spotify bio content, that's a smart pivot to make as a writer. Because in the end, you know, like, you still got to get the bag. And I see, like, I just see this scenario, like, almost forcing that pivot in a way. 
All right, so we can go ahead and move on to the next piece. And that is you, Tyler, go right ahead. So I chose the piece, musicians cannot lead the hashtag and SARS movement, they can join. Written by Wale Oloware Kende. And I'm, I'm so sorry if I butchered your name, I, I really tried. Um, but really, uh, the, the piece basically discusses, it starts off almost the talking point of the Nigerian artist, uh, Nider Marley, or Naira Marley, and how they were part of this movement through the music, but couldn't physically be a part of it. And almost how musicians have this wall, or at least like major musicians anyway, right? Major musicians have this wall currently in the year 2020 of activism and relating it to the older generation and the newer generation. And basically discussing how artists, not only with NSARS, but this is very much so a highlight of in the article, um, what it's about, but how this can translate to other movements as well. And artists, especially big name artists, almost have two things going on. They're like, I need to stay safe and protected, but I also do want to say this, uh, say this thing and be a part of this movement. But because of your visibility, you can't lead it. You, ca you can't be the face of it because you're already the face for yourself. You're already marketing yourself. You can't market yourself and be a part of this movement at the same time. And I thought that to be extremely fascinating. And the article brought up the big question is like, what can they do? How do you use your voice responsibly? And, and if you're really about it, what are you willing to sacrifice? Um, they brought up the artist, uh, the Nigerian artist, uh, Fela Kuti, who was a f their fame maverick and not only released music, protest music for Nigeria, but it was also on the ground and was one of the leaders. And you just can't really, it seems like you, the most, uh, most artists choose not to do that nowadays um, for better or for worse. Um, and I thought it brought up, the, I think it brought up a great question that we can have this conversation now, even though it's answered some of those questions in their personal opinion, what do you think is the proper thing for an artist to do if they want to get involved with the movement like Black Lives Matter and SARS, um, LGBT, LGBT rights? That's a, well, that's a big question of what you can do. Um, I think before, kind of before I answer that, what I think the piece really did well, um, more so, was really highlight the reasons why, uh, the piece did really well is the, the targeting of the message was to not only to artists, but also to the, the people who are on the ground and who are fans of these artists. And it was, it was more of a warning to not expect, um, expect artists to, because they have that kind of wall that you were talking about that separates them from the movement, um, to not expect artists to be leaders in the movement and, and, put a lot of reasoning why, and then also gave artists a really good reason in the same, same sphere, um, the same reasoning why artists should not expect that of themselves because they cannot personally relate um, in the same way as the people on the ground yeah. to the direct effect of, of the movement. 
Um, it, yeah, it's, it's sort of, it sort of broke down like why it can be problematic for artists, um, using the specific example of the Nigerian artist, uh, Naira Mali that they mentioned at the beginning. And, you know, like you said, what I think, what I agree a hundred percent with the piece does well is not sort of like making a big, you know, grand statement on what the perfect activist artist looks like, but sort of pointing out the problematic ways in which artists have gone about it. And then, you know, by, by approaching the problems, you know, by avoiding the problems that he points out, you can sort of see a, you know, a brighter path to the activism that has a real impact. Um, and sort of one of the ways he does that is by making the point early on uh, that an artist's engagement with social issues really comes through a reflection of their reality and not the wider experience of the people affected. Um, and he makes that argument really strongly with the case of Naira Mali, like he mentions, who, you know, at the sort of uh, has this this call where he says that, you know, now that the SARS has backed down, um, he, he says it's up to you guys to not go out and steal or the police will come back. Um, and he mentions, you know, why that's problematic, because, first of all, you don't stop people from stealing by telling them not to steal you address the issues and the disparity that are causing something like that. Um, so that is him coming from a place where he's now separate from the people who he's making himself an image in this in this uh, in this justice campaign. And then what that does is it can sort of divide the people and divide their act. Well, in the worst case scenario, um, the journalist in this instance goes in to elaborate how it did not stop the the drive of the progressive people who are working on the ground, the youth in Nigeria. Um, but something like that, when you have a musical icon who has, their music has sort of been represented throughout the issue, when they then go and make a, a stance or they go make a statement that is removed from the people on the ground, you know, then it, it creates internal, like, division and internal strife. And uh, Wale, the journalist, mentions in this piece specifically how um, Nera's statement could very, I mean, could very realistically give the police units a talking point to prolong the resistance to change, mm-hmm. right? Because it gives, it gives the impression, especially, okay, it's like when you put, when someone is up as sort of a representation, and in this case, that person becomes a representation of a thing through their music, right? And so then when you put that person up, the, it, it can be construed, any statement that that person makes can be construed as a consenting opinion of a mass amount of people just because that person has that platform. So in this in- instance, uh, Naira makes that statement. The police can now use that as an argument to say like, okay, look, uh, agree with him. Like he you know, he's representing you like we agree, we agree with him. Like we will stop the violence as long as you stop the theft. You know, it's a deflection of responsibility in a way. Yeah. Um, at, to actually answer <laughs> your question that you posed better, I actually think Wale did uh, a really good job of, of, of answering that for me uh, in this it's really just a half of a sentence, but he says the most impactful pop musicians of the movement have been those who have found their footing using their platforms, commun- their platforms, community organizing skills and activism to bolster the movement 
within this fluid structure? So the, the answer is clearly there's a level of influence for the major artist platform that should not be um, unused or ignored. So there, there isn't a potential influence that is there. So to, to shy away from it on some level is kind of inferred in this statement um, is to a detriment. But that said, the, the best way, at least, um, that he's posing for or that artists have already done to help the movement is to specifically use their platforms only with the intention of bolstering the movement or the community organizers that already exist. So I think that he, yeah, that would be, I guess, I, I just want to say I agree with Wale. And I think that was actually a very well, um, well-structured sentence and a, well, a good way to put it. Yeah, um, I do agree with that. And but I think it was also interesting that they also posed the question to uh, like as the questions they were posing to, as you were saying earlier, they posed a question to artists and to the fans of their music that the thing that they posed to the artists as well is like, how much are you almost willing to give up? Right. Because if you do, if you're like, if you're like, OK, I'm not to say that not artists who um, stay behind that wall aren't about it. But if you want to be on the ground level with the people, how it's almost how, how dirty are you willing to get with them? Yeah. Because you can't stay behind that, you can't stay behind that wall forever if you're trying to have a certain level of say and or participation in it. Yeah, yeah, that makes me, you know, that makes me think of, especially when you talk about like, what are you willing to give up? Um, that reminds me of John Boyega, who plays Finn in Star Wars, mm. um, with the Black Lives Matter protests. This man, like, working working for Disney in their largest franchise, like in literally in Star Wars, right? And he is one, like was one of the most prominent people that I saw on the ground. And, you know, not it, it, even there was a tweet he said specifically um, where someone called, you know, someone called him out for like you kids watch Star Wars and you're stoking division. And, you know, he ver- he made a very clear statement where he was like, this isn't about my career. This isn't about the movies I'm in. This is about this movement, right? So he would always, even as big of a figure as he was participating in this movement, he would always direct the attention to the mo- to the movement. Um, so I found that a very respectable model for how a celebrity activist or you know a musician can participate in um, movements like that. Yeah, you can even go back to like um, this is a, not a musician, but it's an entertainer to a certain degree, Muhammad Ali. Like every single like interview he had, every single thing that he was on, he would bring it. Up, he would make it would, it would be about black rights. Um, and seeing musicians nowadays, like we, even in the midst of June and July, we saw plenty of artists be at protests, but they never tried to steal the tension away. If they would never like, ch- they were not trying to have photo ops or anything of that nature. They was like, I'm here. This is my. I'm using my time to further this move, excuse me, further this movement. Yeah, I think uh, what Wale does is um, lays out uh, a a very solid and well-construed argument as to, of the reasons why, if you are not willing to sacrifice what the people on the ground are also willing to sacrifice for the movement, that you should not put your foot in it in a way that emerges you as a figurehead within the movement. Yes. So, and that goes for any example across the board. And I mean, that for sure makes me think a little bit of, um, 
the Andre G piece on Ice Cube specifically. Yeah. <laughs> Brandon knew exactly what I was going to bring up. Yeah, it all connects. So, it all connects. Uh, is like, is he willing to actually give up the necessary social capital that the people who are actually, you know, on the ground trying to get things like reparations and are looking for liberation of black people in America, is he actually willing to give up those same things that were at the end of the day are going to be necessary to part with in order to really make that, that, uh, an actionable thing. Um, and I think, yeah, I think, um, the thing that is the most striking, uh, about literally anything that I have read about the NSARS movement and especially this piece is, um, just all of the specific parallels to what is going on here, um, are always very, very striking. Extremely relevant. Right. And, Wale, um, the journalist here, did an excellent job of bringing that into context. You know, he didn't entirely he, – he focused entirely on the Nigerian SARS issue, like almost entirely on that. But also in a way where he didn't dance around the fact that this is also tied to the Black Lives Matter movement in the U.S. Um, and there's a specific sentence in here that when I read it, I went, okay, yeah, like looking at you, Ice Cube. Like and I want to read that one <laughs> specific sentence um, that I think addresses – his image of the ideal, like, musician involved in activism. Um, and he's listing a, a few rappers from Nigeria who ha were representing this model. So he says, instead of concerted efforts at elevating their profiles through the visibility of the protests, the musicians simply lit the fire for what has now evolved into a social revolution across the country, giving speeches and moral support to people who came out. And then further on down in the piece, he says... Music celebrities seem to have found an alternate role in protest as lodestars to strengthen the weary and urge increased participation online and offline. Yeah. So when I, you know, when I, when I hear this and when I, I, I get his image for like the ideal activist, I think of really what it's about is the talking point, right? Is the talking point going to be oh, J. Cole was at the protest, or is the talking point going to be the protest, right? And that is a line that you really have to toe carefully um, as a musician or just, you know, any kind of celebrity activist. Um, and he does a good job of breaking down, you know, what, where these issues come from, why the line is so sensitive, um, providing examples of who has done it poorly, who has done it well, um, and in the end, the piece just leaves you with this great, like, roadmap blueprint to asking the questions mm -hmm. that will get you to the answer. Yeah. yeah. It's um, like they, inter they interweave the old, the, uh, the older waves of revolution to the newer waves that are happening right now. And just, and the way that they did that was wonderful because you get to see, a, you get a peak of Nigeria's protest history with not only just music, but through the figures that they had to the current figures or the ways that they're doing it now. And I, I thought that was brilliant. And then even in the way they critiqued artists when they were when they when Wale was bringing up these artists that are doing it now, the critiques were valid to at least to me, and they read it off and oh, excuse me, wrote it very in a in a valid validating type way. They're like, yes, they're doing this, but then it's how they can do it better, or there's how there's or there's how people um, are mm -hmm. having their separation between the artists. Sorry, this is very important, and I, I mentioned this at the the beginning. Uh, the difference of this piece to a lot of pieces, not just about NSARS, but about movements in general like this, is um, the direction of the end of the piece or the conclusion versus the thesis. So the conclusion is very much more so of like people should not also be 
they should not be in, placing themselves as figureheads, but very much people should not be looking to them as such or make them feel guilty if they are not stepping out in the front of the movement because that is not to a benefit of what is built on the ground. Um, and yeah, that second to last paragraph um, is kind of like the, the call to that, I think is so well done and specifically um, um, spelled out. So I just wanted to read that really quickly. I had it in my notes and I just think that was my, my favorite part of the piece is just kind of bring it all around. Um, now is not the time to look to mu musicians and celebrities to lead the charge for a moral right. Not when they wittingly and unwittingly, that's important, wittingly and unwittingly, that hit my ear very, very specifically, benefit from the current situations of things in ways that obfuscate the true toll of Nigeria's problems for them. That specifically makes me think so much of Ice Cube of like, you know, Ice Cube obviously is like the guy who, who wrote Fuck the Police. Like he's a black man in America, so he has the, you know, he, he feels the oppression and has felt it his whole life, but there's this specific thing and reason um, and separation between the people on the ground and the celebrities and musicians who also... Um, they feel it, but they feel it in a different way, which does not qualify, nor should you support them in being figureheads. Yes. Yeah. I, I think that's an excellent thing to end on for this piece um, is, you know, really just not, not ignoring also that the responsibility that's placed on um, activists on the ground and just fans of musicians in general to not, you know, at, people say this all the time and it, and for some reason, you know, it doesn't always get through, but like, celebrities musicians are people too yeah. right they're not you know they're not meant to be figureheads or idolized yeah. or you know look there there are much there are much more people who are you know are already know what they're doing on the ground and those are the people that need to be followed as opposed to just someone who has made your favorite song about an issue right um so a lot of it you know roadmap for how the artist should act, but then also in turn, um, how activists and fans should look to the artists or not look to the artists as well. Right. And what I get, just as the last thing before we move into the last piece is what I get underneath the line is, is that it feels like Wale also understands the impulse, which is the reason that while it feels like they need to break down every single thing before they get to that, they understand the impulse of like, you have all this influence, you need to get out there and like be the head of this and make shit happen. Like that makes a lot of sense in the structure of things and seeing the influence that these musicians and celebrity ha celebrities have to want to push them to be that person. So, so to spell it out like this and then come back around to that in the end is, is so important because it sets up the, the understanding that it feels like while is trying to express the piece. Yeah. Great analysis, yeah. I mean, you definitely touched on some important parts that uh, we did not want to miss. So. and take it away right into your new piece. Your yeah, piece. so um, on a, a bit of a different note, that the, though there's very much, um, this writer in this piece also brings in some um, very act activism forward topics within the end of the piece specifically. Um, but this is a, the digital cover for Paper Magazine um, written by Nicholas Tyrell Scott. Um, and it is for uh, up and comer and an artist that I've been very excited listening to in Flo Millie. Um, who is kind of the biggest newcomer newcomer within what I would would uh, call and which Nicholas Terrell calls very much in the piece a kind of new wave of movement of of women in rap. 
Um, and so the piece is titled Flo Millie is here for more than a moment. Um, so the thing that, so I, again, I kind of mentioned at the beginning of the podcast that I wrote my first digital cover, uh, recently. So I really wanted to bring this piece forward as someone who had, had just, um, tried to dive into that, which is a very specific structure doing a profile digital cover. It feels like, because there's kind of boxes that you feel like you have to check. Um, and if in my memory of, of at least since the time that I've been on the podcast, we haven't really as much brought a digital cover that is as traditional as this one feels. The closest thing that I remember, Brandon, is when you brought the little baby piece for Rolling Stone, but that was a little bit untraditional because, which was a, again an unbelievable piece. But because <laughs> he was following, it wasn't like the you sit down for an interview kind of thing and then you write this kind of narrative context. Uh, it was he was like following little baby and there was this kind of more of a storyline rather than creating the narrative yourself so uh in this piece i i just really thought reading it all the way through it grabbed me from beginning to end and i think nicholas tyrell scott did a really good job of kind of checking all the boxes but also having a very serious amount of journalistic integrity so the very most obvious box that you have to check is you have to make the artist front and center and ne never for a moment make it feel like you are putting your kind of i'm a great journalist telling this narrative in front of the story of the artist who is on the cover but in that same token, the way you can prop up that being the main point in the story is to form um, the narrative that naturally comes by investigating um, what has brought upon, especially for an artist like Flo Millie, who's really on the rise, what has um, in turn made that rise happen. So uh, what I think he does really well, and my favorite part of the piece is what he introduces, uh, I think, a dual narrative. Um, which tie in together and then brings them all the way back around at the end. One is the first thing I mentioned, which is new, well, not just new, but women in rap in general and that as a movement and an idea, um, as well as nostalgia. So um, he first uses, uh, and he has really good with these pieces, I know personally from writing one, it's very important how you um, place quotes. So uh, the first quote that really stuck out to me, which is to me felt, even though it's a little bit deep into the piece, as more of the thesis is he does a, uses a quote about how Five Star by Trina and the, the remix with Nicki Minaj was really impactful for Flo Millie. And what I think that does is have this, initial, this initiation of her influence of women in rap and then also kind of the nostalgia and the, the separation of... Um, of eras that kind of combine into one thing. So she uses this idea of, um, he uses this idea of the influence of, of Trina to propel into, uh, uh, the idea of how they, her in, in conjunction with Nicki Minaj really influence who Flo Millie is. Um, and then I wanted to talk uh, to just read this quote about the, the paragraph from a paragraph, um, that I think he used Flo Millie's quotes really well too. Um, so I'm just going to read that. Ho, why, Ho, why is you here? Which is Flo Millie's album visually delivers too, with Flo Millie borrowing from the eighties and nineties. Her stance can almost instantly be likened to Lil Kim's hardcore squat, AKA, AKA one of the most iconic album covers in the history of women in rap. Flo says this was a happy accident. 
I've heard the Lil' Kim suggestion before, but it was inspired by a movie. Once she Googled the image for reference moments later, she sh circles back to her initial claims. Wow, I look so much like her. You can include that. She laughs. The whole Why Is You Here artwork by Denasia Sutton, Denasia Sutton, actually channels the 1997 Halle Berry comedy BAPS, acronymic for Black American Princess. It was dope to dip into the past and really show homage to eras of the past. I love nostalgia. Um, so yeah, so that um kind of dual dual narrative again here is very well 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 spelled out of women in rap and their influence on what flo millie has become and uh the nostalgia that flo millie specifically has for a certain era uh which is kind of exemplified by trina and then towards the end of the piece um nicholas tyrell goes into the flo millie's appreciation for the new movement of women in rap and how supportive it is so um Inserting this stuff at the beginning sets all of that up because it, it kind of brings it all back around as this is where she started from and what has made her what she is today. And then this new movement, um, she has found her place in because it reminds her of the reason she, she got into it in the first place. Um, so I have a bunch of other things <laughs> that I can talk about. Um, and I know I always, every time I do an intro, I feel like I ramble on forever because I get really excited about the pieces I'm talking about. Um, but what, what do you guys, what were your thoughts? Uh, I thought the piece was great. Um, and bringing in the, the three names of Trina, Nicki Minaj, and Flo Millie, I think is great because it's like going from decade to decade. Yeah. It's like it goes to like that 2000s with Trina and how her, her like more so her popularity there to Nicki Minaj and how Nicki Minaj was a huge influence on Flo Millie and how she mm -hmm. ran the 2010s and how in 106 in Park, what, uh, 2000, uh, ends in 2014, that's where she wanted to like have her music video premiere to now 2020, the newest decade. And like we have this star's prominence who's also 20 years old and seeing how she's now rising. I thought like that was in, like so well woven and, and so well done. And I was like, oh, I was like, well, I, especially when you speak, I was like, yeah, it's like he really just like it was like a it was like a nice little escalator, just like <laughs> how he brought that to like from the past to now. I thought that was amazing, and also weaving in Flo Millie's uh, look at social issues and how that's naturally coming in through her music as well, and what she's trying to say and what's happening right now, and it's all it all felt very natural. That was the thing about the piece I I appreciated. It was it all felt very very natural yeah brandon what did you think yeah so i think um what, what, what i found like the most interesting about this piece was when i do an interview the question um you know it all, pretty much always comes up like who are your musical influences right and i usually think of that question as a sort of small talk mm -hmm. at the beginning of an interview get them warmed up get an idea for sort of you know where their mindset is when they're making music but this 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 whole digital cover story is almost like a focus on that question mm -hmm. beyond just the superficial like oh like what kind of music do you listen to but more of a like how do these influences shape the artist that Flo Millie is mm -hmm. um and the sort of like arc of the piece as Tyler was mentioning as a sort of women in rap history lesson while also using that to describe like who Flo Millie is now in this moment and the person that she developed into to become that that mm -hmm. moment um, was just really well told through the context of, you know, like Trina and Nicki Minaj. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah. And I think um, the other thing to go kind of move it a step forward, which Tyler kind of hinted on a little bit is then with that influence of, of the, the Trina, Nicki Minaj, and then Flo Millie, he inserts a quote, I, though I don't have it written down exactly of like, it was where Flo Millie says some version of that kind of togetherness and support was gone for a minute, but now it's back. It's like, if she's kind of inferring on some level that that energy of, having that like feeling of joy from seeing that and then it going away and now coming back is making this movement right now that much stronger and more impactful opening up um some uh the the conversation to move into um public discussions about female empowerment and specifically female empowerment in rap and then references the Meg Thee Stallion New York Times piece and things like that and then talks about the empowerment specifically expressed in Hawaii as you hear um, which, uh, I think was, yeah, it was just a really good sequence. Yeah. It's, and then, and Megan's piece and like city girls and like, all, just bringing all the women in rap today and how their prominence and how their togetherness is so key to it. Cause without it, I think, I think you, uh, they were uh, alluding to without it, the movement doesn't get as far or is not as, as you were saying, it's not as powerful without it. But I really, but I really do love the way they just interweave time and nostalgia throughout this whole entire piece. It was just awesome because, like, because just the simple mentioning of like how she grew up and just getting that background on her, I was like, oh man, I want to watch some BET right now. It's been so long, <laughs> right? But it also shows how artists like Flo Millie, who have been you know inspired by these other great female rappers, are also you know, pushing for something new in the empowerment of female rappers. Because there's a long yeah. history of um, not only just, like, toxic masculinity that pushes female rappers out of the sphere, yeah. but female rappers pushing other female rappers out of the sphere. And yeah. female rappers' fans pushing female rappers out of the sphere. Yeah. Um, I, and I've, you know, I've mentioned that previously on the podcast um, with specifics to Nicki Minaj and Cardi B, how there was, you know, especially when Cardi was coming up, this all this beef between her and Nikki and people constantly like comparing them and just always this general feeling that there's never enough room for more than the female rapper in hip hop and that all female rappers sort of have to compete for this spot. Um, and female artists really, you know, a specific, like Nicki Minaj and Cardi B both sort of embraced that as a way to boost their sales individually. Um, but it splits the fan base, right? You know, you have fans who are listening to Cardi B and they're like, oh, I couldn't listen to Nicki Minaj. I couldn't do it. Rather than what Flo Millie has learned from the artists who've inspired her and she wants to do something new. So it's learning from the people who have created this cumulative person that is Flo Millie. It's learning from them and then also, you know, adding this new wave of like empowerment for women in hip hop um, that has just really taken off this year and sort of, I, I liked how the, the journalist used uh, her new album as really a representation for like how that's different and how it's something new and something that is like very specific and purposeful to flow Millie. Mm -hmm. mm. Yeah. And I thought it was the, I, I thought it was kind of ironic saying like how Nicki Minaj was her biggest influence and that that era of Nikki is the 2010s, um, early 2010s, so like maybe mid to later 2010s is the biggest area of division as well. I thought I was like, huh, I was like her biggest influence. And she, she literally, uh, Flo Millie states like Nikki did what she had to do during that time. Mm -hmm. 
and it and it makes sense in your but i was like it's just funny like division to togetherness in in this yeah. in the span of 10 years yeah well it suggests obviously with the piece and, and nicholas does a really good job of this that uh you know that what you're talking about which is the clear division between that was you know maybe a little bit personally you know formed but also very much by public opinion that this new era of people like meg and city girls and flo millie are actually really the glue i mean it it was big to me i think wap was a bigger deal than people give it credit for even as far as that goes because she had already done meg had already done hot girl summer with nikki and that was kind of like okay you've clearly aligned yourself there on the music front and then now you have done a song with cardi and there seems to be no problem so there is really, it was like, okay, this actually leaves open this potential for this full group of modern female rappers to be the glue for that situation, to eliminate it entirely. And then uh, with all of these other examples, um, again, going back to the Meg New York Times piece and the, just the music itself, Flo Millie's music itself, um, it's like, look what we can do. Um, feels like the the full message that that Flo Millie is trying to deliver with the piece, and that um, Nicholas really, I think, does a really great job of honing in on. Yeah, I think also on a specific note, uh, something I just really enjoyed from Flo Millie's perspective is when she mentions how um, so in high school she had like decided that she wanted to be a viral <laughs> music star, and then when her first thing hit and went viral how she said that she was like, and like she started getting all this attention and she was like, Oh shit, she's got to catch up. Um, which I think, you know, most of the time when you think about it, I think artists sort of experience the opposite of that. I think a lot of time you have artists who are putting in really hard work, really quality work for a long time before something catches on. And then when they catch on, they feel like finally everyone else is catching up to me mm-hmm. versus, you know, it seems a more unique scenario with Flo Millie where she's just, sort of messing around she has this intention she's not really focusing on like the more complex aspects of the artistry she's just like once this viral hit and then once she gets it she's like she has this moment where she's like okay i have to really now narrow down and focus on it like i've got this moment like this is a little more than a game now it's something i can do and i can do extremely well um and she embraced that challenge and has obviously more then rolled with it to become the, you know, excellent rapper that she is today. Yeah, she can rap. <laughs> like, she, like, she can <laughs> rap, bro. Like, it's like, and, and it shows, like, I think, artistic integrity on her on her part. She's like, all right, if I'm going to have this fame and attention, I'm, I'm going to show people that I have the talent to back it all up. Like, I have the writing, yeah. I have the raps, I have the flows. And I, th- I think that's great on, like, and that makes me more of a fan of her. Yeah, I, uh... He doesn't mention this. The one that I really like from that album is Pussycat Doll. I feel like that's her best rapping. Yo, that's a joint. That's a joint. Yeah. <laughs> that is a joint. <laughs> I know. I'm trying to quickly, without making too much of a pause, there's like this one bar in that that I really like, but I'm not going to remember what it is off the dome. <laughs> uh, with this being a digital cover story, are you are you looking up the bar right now? I'm looking up the bar. Say what you were going to say. Okay, Give yeah. So with this being with this being a digital cover story, um, and like Mickey talked about at the beginning, is sort of like what aspects make a great digital cover story. Um, I also want to bring some attention to hold. On, I gotta scroll up to find her name. Um, the fashion director and stylist Misa Hilton, um, who really mm-hmm. like 
I mean, there's a lot of work that goes into cover stories when it comes to photo shoots and fashion, but really on this piece, like the tone of the artwork sets things so well for this digital cover story. Like not, not only is the styling and the fashion done so well, but they include these um, drawn graphics that are drawn representations of the style and the artwork on them I just thought was incredible. And then even at the very end of the piece, uh, one of my favorite parts of the piece was sort of this epilogue where the stylist, uh, Misa Hilton, writes this very like poetic representation of, you know, what what these styles that she designed were. Um, and you get the feeling that she is able to summon this energy for Flo Millie based on Flo Millie, right? She's not like just coming up with a style that's going to look good. She's not just coming up with like a new image or anything. She like really embraces like Flo Millie's representation and then, you know, tries to get that across in the artwork included with the digital cover story. I mean, I don't know if that kind of quality might be a mainstay for paper. I might need to check out more of their digital cover stories, but it was incredibly well done um, and had an excellent emphasis, I think, in this piece. Yeah. I agree. You found the bar? I found I found <laughs> I found the bar. It's like it's like not <laughs> now that I'm remembering, it's like not that it's like that much of like a whoa, she said some crazy shit, but it's really just the delivery and it's just like a little goofy. But it's just like the opening bar in the first verses. Make him blow a check on me, save his number under we gon' see. <laughs> YSL Gucci back up Juvie. <laughs> he loved my aura when he with you, he'd be bored if he call it press ignore. But I just really love the save his number under we gon' see. <laughs> I don't know. Oh, that's that's the player's mentality right there. Play up, play yeah. up. <laughs> like All right, does anybody got anything else to add to Flo Millie? No, I think we're good there. Okay, I'm gonna go back and shout out the uh journalists we covered today. So first of all, we covered the story SEO, Billie Eilish, Tame Impala, Lizzo, and more, The Accelerating Decline of Music Journalism and More by Mike Lesur, the senior editor at Flood Magazine. Um, and you can find this piece in the link below uh, the tweet for this podcast episode because it is on his blog, not on Flood Magazine. Um, and then a second shout out for musicians cannot lead the NSARS movement. They can join by Wale, oh, I should, Tyler, I should have let you do this since you already read it once. Wale Olowokende. And again, apologies if I mispronounced that, as I'm sure I did. And last but not least, we had the paper cover story. Flo Millie is here for more than a moment by Nicholas Tyrell Scott with fashion directing and styling by Misa Hilton. Um, as always, thank you for listening, listeners. If you are a small independent writer or are following a small independent writer uh, who you believe their work deserves some more attention, please send us their writing, send us your writing. We will check it out. We may possibly even feature it on the podcast for one of our discussions and leave us a review wherever you listen to podcasts because that can really help us gain visibility which also in turn helps these great artists we cover gain increasing visibility. So it's like breaking the fourth wall. You can participate in the podcast by clicking that five star button. Yeah. And uh, one last, uh, since we're on the, we always get on the topic of mispronunciation, leave in the comments if you think you pronounce this word biopic or biopic. 
Okay. Brandon says longest, biopic. I, it's biop. Brandon oh says biopic, and I say biopic, <laughs> and we always talk about how we have different pronunciations for things. So leave a comp. Apple Podcasts. It's biopic. <laughs> so here's the thing. Even my even my film professors were like they all said it differently. Direct, literally directors. I had directors of professors, and they were like all of them said it differently. It is a film it's, that is a biography. Bio. <laughs> But by Picture. ah, ah, that's a that's a hard O sound in biography. No. By ah, pick Lincoln bio, bro, not Lincoln bio. Bio. Pic. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, let's let's see if we can end the debate. Let's see let's see if like our, our listeners can put this into this wonderful debate. I would love I would love to see it. I need constant affirmation. All you need so. to say is just write Lincoln bio in the comments, and we'll know what you mean. all right thanks for listening everybody um as always thank you to mickey and tyler for joining me today thank you thank you brother This episode of Search of Source featured Brandon Hill, Mika Hellebeck, and Tyler Jones of the Central Source Creative Collective. The episode was edited by me, Charlie Taylor, Fifth and Podcast Network. Music for the show is fucked up by Bars T. Thanks to Chop Records for the ability to use. This has been a Central Source, Fifth and Podcast Network production. Thanks to Bars T, Chop Records, Central Source, the Fifth Element, and content covered in the episode can all be found in the full show notes below. Thanks for listening, we hope to see you next time as we continue our search for Source.